church. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll continue our scripture reading in just a moment. Today we're joined not only by those who may still be vacationing online, but we're joined by our other two campuses, our Lake Carroll campus and our ministry center at Six Mile. Would you welcome them as we worship together today? Thursday night, for the first time ever, we provided a Thanksgiving meal on Thanksgiving Day at our Six Mile campus, and we saw three individuals that began a relationship with Christ because of our time together with the Lord. So we're grateful for what God's doing. Here we are. The greatest preacher who ever preached is delivering his best sermon ever. And of course, I'm not talking about me talking about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He's in the middle of his message, and he starts talking about one of his favorite subjects, one that may be one of your least favorite subjects, the subject of generosity. If you look at the New Testament, the Gospels, 25% of everything that Jesus said was about money, stewardship, and generosity. In fact, he talks about it two different times in this one message. So just buckle up, buttercup. You're going to hear it this week, and then several weeks from now, we'll be back in God's Word in this sermon, and you'll hear it again. Shouldn't surprise us because everybody throughout history has seen the value of understanding human generosity. Even atheists. Richard Dawkins said, Let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we're born selfish. Our community has a large number of Islamic people. The Quran says, you shall never be truly righteous until you give in alms what you dearly cherish. Our community has many who have come from an Indian background. Hinduism says, they who give have all things. They who withhold have nothing. We have other Asians in our community. Confucianism says, he who wishes to secure the good of others has already secured his own. But we acknowledge today we're gathered as followers of Christ. So what does Jesus say? Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what he speaks on at this point in the sermon. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Be careful. That literally means keep on being careful. It's saying, watch out. It's like that black sign with red lettering that sometimes you see on a fence. It says, beware of dog. In other words, if you proceed in an incorrect manner, this could hurt you. It could be dangerous. Jesus is saying, as you go forward, recognize this is something you need to get right. So be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, he's going to give three different examples of practicing righteousness. So what does that imply? Jesus expects us to practice righteousness. And that's good for you to know. Because this is a church, and the church welcomes everyone, but it primarily consists of those who profess to follow Christ. And so one of the reasons we come is to encourage each other 
in our practice of righteousness. And in this sermon, Jesus gives us three different ways we practice righteousness. He talks about our giving. He talks about our praying. He talks about fasting. And then he talks about giving again. Just examples of how we practice righteousness. But he gives us this warning. Be careful when you practice righteousness, when you do the right things, that you don't do them in the wrong way. Be careful how you do them. Because, he says, if you do, you will have no reward. Say no reward. Did you know everybody wants you to join their reward program? I mean, Everywhere you go, you go to Chick-fil-A. Do you have rewards? No, I just want a Chick-fil-A. You go to McDonald's. Do you have rewards? Well, matter of fact, I do. Give me a free bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. Thank you, because I have rewards. You go to racetrack to fill up your car with gas, and it asks you on the machine, do you have rewards? Everybody wants you to have rewards, and then you're kind of put in a class based on the number of rewards you have. you like a cardboard reward level. Or... Silver or gold or platinum or diamond. Jesus is saying, be careful. Because you can do this right thing. You can practice righteousness in such a way that you don't get any rewards. Now, why is that significant? Well, he goes on to tell us. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will rewards you. Well, there's so much richness even in that last sentence. Our our Heavenly Father sees what is done in secret. That should be challenging and convicting to all of us. Our Heavenly Father sees what is done in secret. But in this particular case, our Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Well, what's the point? I'm going to give you just kind of the point of the message. I want to pray, and then let's talk about this passage of Scripture, and one more that I think will illustrate what Jesus is saying here. Here's the point. Biblical generosity is not a religious ritual, but a natural response to the gospel of Jesus. I want you to walk out of here today thinking about how you can be more generous, but not because you've checked some box, not because that's what the pastor said or that's what your religion teaches. I want you to be thinking about generosity because you understand that it's a natural overflow, a response to the gospel of Jesus. So let's pray to that end, okay? So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we simply ask, would you give us what we need? Would you teach us what we've not learned? Would you make us different? And would you lead us to be generous? And God, we pray that you would do that, not simply for our good, though we know we will benefit. We pray that you would do that for your glory. So Lord, I pray that 
in these next few moments as I try to talk about your words. That the words I say would be from you and even my thoughts would represent you well. And Lord, I pray that today, for someone who hears these words, you would become their strength and their redeemer. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's going on here? Jesus is preaching this message. He started with the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are you if you do this, blessed are you if you do that, blessed are you if you do this. He, he then gives us our why, remember that? You're the salt, you're the light, so that you may bring, bring glory to the Father. He then begins to talk about those antithesis. You remember the antithesis? It's when Jesus was saying, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you that. In other, in other words, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Well, of course, don't kill. That's not good, but... I'm telling you, don't hate people. Don't talk ugly about people. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Yeah, don't, don't commit adultery. That screws up your life. But I, I'm telling you, even your thoughts, even the way you lust about others can mess up your life. Jesus was always raising the standard. And he continues to do that. He, he raises the standard to help us think, not just about our actions, but about our attitudes. Not just about how we present ourselves externally, but how we present ourselves internally. I read recently that Stephen King, how many of you have heard of Stephen King, the author? Stephen King may be the most famous writer of horror and mystery ever. Um, he, he said that all of his stories are either about innies or outies. Now, when I first heard that, I, I thought he was talking about belly buttons, but he's not. That's not what he's talking about. He, he's saying when he's writing horror, he's coming from one or two perspectives. He's either coming from the horror that is created from someone's fears that arise within or the horror that is created from a person's fears that come from without. Innies or outies. And he says he's found that most people only like one of the forms. Most people don't like both. Well, I've been hanging out around folks like us all my life. And you, I've discovered that we're kind of in those two general groups too. We're, we're generally either folks that focus on the outside or folks that focus on the inside. Those folks that focus on the inside maybe could be epitomized most by the monks. You know, monks who pull aside, they, they kind of seclude themselves from society, and, and they do this in such a way that uh, they're not distracted by anything, and, and they're just focused on what's going on internally, inside their life spiritually. And then there are those that focus just on the outside. They're the box checkers. When I was growing up, we had to take an envelope to church every week. Some of you have an envelope on your seat, but this was different. We took an envelope to church every week, and it had several boxes on the front. And the boxes on the front would say, did you read your Bible every day? Did you uh, go to Sunday school today? Did you pray? Um, did you bring an offering? Are you going to big church? And we had to check all those boxes. And a lot of people that I know who, who bear the name of Christ, they're outies. They focus on the outside and they're box checkers. And so as long as the boxes are checked, they feel like they're all right. They look the part. 
But Jesus was saying, hey, it's not just about your outside. It's not even just about your inside. It is both. The Christian journey is a life lived out in faith that affects everything about you. The Jesus way is different. He was saying when you live the Jesus way, the change you experience on the inside overflows and it impacts everything about you on the outside. And when that change really occurs, you begin to look like Jesus. And you look different to the world. But when that change has not occurred, you begin to look like what Jesus calls a hypocrite. Your outer life is different. There's another passage where Jesus illustrates this. It's in Luke 18. Let me tell you the story. Uh, Jesus says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, he told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. What a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like that guy, the tax collector. Wow. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. You know, that's kind of humorous, though not many of you laughed. But I think a lot of people pray that way. It's all about us. We, we talk to one we believe is the God of the universe, but when we pray, we pray about us. God, I did this, and I did that, and I am this, and I am that, and I need this, and I need that. And Jesus is using this, and it's not a good example. And then he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the others, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What is Jesus saying? Man, this religious, ritualistic, legalistic mentality gets you nowhere. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's using giving and generosity to illustrate this same truth. Now, why would he use giving to illustrate this? It's because few things demonstrate what's really important to you, like what you do with what you have. So I want you to think about that. What would you say is the most important thing in your life? What are you doing with that which God has given to you? The message of Jesus is clear. If you do this your way, you'll get what you can give. So he gives the illustration. Don't be like those who give to the sound of a trumpet. What's that mean? I don't know. I wasn't there. We could guess. I, I don't think he's saying that people gave in the offering plate and then they pulled out a trumpet out of their robe and went... Doo -doo -doo. Probably not. I don't think that happened. Um, some would say that when they gave, like we used to have offering uh, trays, that maybe they had metal containers that they would take the offering in, and it wasn't paper money, it was coin, and so maybe they would come in with big old bags of coin and let it rattle around like clanging gongs, making a lot of noise. I don't know. But what we know is Jesus was saying, when you give in such a way, 
that everybody knows everything about what you're doing, then you've got your reward right there. We even have a phrase that we draw from this. You know what the phrase is? Toot your own horn. Jesus says, if you want to toot your own horn, go ahead. But that's your, that's your reward, the toot of a horn. But if you do things God's way, you get what only your Father can give. Now, when I read this from Matthew 6... It's kind of confusing because Jesus goes on to say, so be real secretive. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that sounds good if you've got amnesia. Because just a few minutes ago in the same sermon, he said, you are the salt. You are the light. Let everybody see you. Be like a city on a hill. Is he contradicting himself? No. Jesus is talking about motive. Remember when Jesus said that in Matthew 5 and verse 16? Let's look at it again. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Our why, our motivation in everything that we do is to bring glory and honor to God. Anything, say anything. Anything that gets in the way of that, that takes away from God's glory in our life, causes us to lose out on His best for us. So if we don't get our reward immediately, what's the reward? I want to spend the rest of the time talking to you about that. Because I think if you look at early Christ followers, you see that they discovered the reward. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing this letter to a church at Corinth. Corinth is a very wealthy city. It's got prominent leaders. It's a big city. And he's going to tell them about an offering that was given from small churches in a poor area named Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was just a few hours away there in what is today Greece. It was probably one of the cities like Philippi, the church in Philippi that Paul wrote the letter to Philippians. But he's using them as an example when he's challenging this church at Corinth to be generous. Listen to what he says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God's given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. I love that phrase. Aren't you grateful when your expectations are exceeded? They exceeded our expectations, and they gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 
I'm not commanding you. But I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Now remember what we said just a moment ago? Biblical generosity is not a religious ritual, but a natural response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what was going on here? Paul is using as an example this church that he describes in this way. They had very severe trial, but they had overflowing joy. They had extreme poverty, but they had rich generosity. Some of you have walked through trials. I know some of your stories. I know some of the challenges that you faced. Could you describe yourself that way? Man, in the midst of extreme trial, I had overflowing joy. Others of you have lost jobs. You've, you've faced foreclosure in your homes. Every week we get prayer requests about financial challenges. Could this be said of you in extreme poverty? They were richly generous. What does all that mean? I'll tell you one thing it means. It means you don't have to be rich to be generous. You just have to be generous. Let's just look at those verses. In verse 1, Paul uses the Macedonians as an example. The people of Corinth were very affluent. They were very talented. They had everything they could want. The Macedonians were poor and they were persecuted. Yet, they were to poster children for generosity. They were giving in a way that honored God. In verse 2, he talks about their severe tests, their afflictions, their extreme poverty. And yet he says they showed generosity. They had lost their jobs. They had faced high taxes, faced persecution and foreclosure. But they heard about the famine in Jerusalem. And so it was their idea to take up an offering. In fact, they did this even while they were going through their own financial stress. In verses 3 and 4, it says they gave according to their means. So they didn't give what the preacher told them to give or they give because there was some standard. They gave according to their means, and then they gave beyond their means, which they were sacrificial. They gave offerings. They gave extra. And they did this even though times were tough. I read that again this week, and I thought, how does that compare with us? The reality is in our culture, most of us don't think we're rich but we are. And most of us think we're generous, but we're not. And I know this because I saw a recent Gallup poll. Gallup asked people if they saw themselves as being rich. They asked people who had a household income of 30000 what would make you rich? You know the answer? 75000 If they made 30000 they would say, $75,000, i would be rich. Then they asked people who made 50000 what would make you rich? You know what they said? 100000 The most common answer given in this country, in America, was if you make $120,000, you are rich. Except for the people that made 120000 <laughs> You know what they said? 200000 But you want some perspective? The reality is, I think we're all rich. 
by God's grace, when this year draws to an end, I will have stepped foot on five different continents. As I go around the world, man, compared to others, we're rich. Did you know that looking around the world, if you make $37,000 a year in your household, you're in the top 4%. That means if your family income is $37,000 a year, you're richer than 96% of the world's population. If you earn $45,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's population. But, statistically, the more a person makes has nothing to do with their generosity. In fact, typically, the more they make, the less they give proportionally. The top 20% of income earners in our country only give an average of 1.3% charitably. The bottom 20% of earners give 3.4% charitably. Here's an interesting one. Christians in America give less percentage-wise than Christ followers in Africa. Christians in our country give less today, percentage-wise, than we did during the Great Depression. The truth is, often people who have much give little, and those who have little give much. I'm so thankful, after 13 years of watching the generosity from so many in our church family, there are stories I could just tell you of how God is challenging and, and changing people's lives. I, I talked with one friend this week, and this was what they said. They had a goal. They said their goal was that in the next few years, they want to make sure that their giving to the Lord's church is the biggest expenditure they have every month. And they said they have a large house payment, but whether they have to match and then exceed that house payment or get the house paid off, they want their giving to the Lord to be the most significant thing they give every month. I talked to another friend who was just talking about how God has challenged them at this stage of life. And a little while back, they made a sacrificial decision and sacrificially gave to the church. And he just looked at me and said, Pastor, it's crazy. You just can't outgive God. I wasn't even looking to really be where I am at this stage of life. But God just continues to pour out his blessings. Reality is there are many in our church who are faithful and generous. But the truth is most are not. There are many who don't participate at all. So what happened here in Corinth? What was Paul describing about Macedonia? In verse 5 it says, they exceeded our expectations. How do you do that? How do you get to a place where you can say, Pastor, we've exceeded your expectation? Well, he tells us the answer. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Oh, dear friend, I ask you, have you given yourself first to the Lord? I want to make two statements, illustrate it, and then send you on your way. The first statement is this. A generous life is the overflow of a grace-changed heart. If you want to be a generous person, then you just seek to better understand the grace of God. 
Why? Because when Jesus impacts your life, it changes everything. I, I can't tell you this in a, in a more serious way. If Jesus has truly changed your life, if you've truly understood that you deserved hell, that you were separated from God for eternity apart from Jesus, that you had no hope apart from Jesus, but Jesus changed your life, then it should affect everything in your life. Why? Well, this goes back to Jesus' sermon. It's because he is your reward. Jesus is your reward. He wants you to understand that he is your everything. That's what Jesus was saying previously in the sermon. He was saying, hey, I'm more important than your reputation. I'm more important than your stuff. I'm more important than your time. I'm more important than your comfort. Do you remember that from last week? That's what Jesus was saying. I want to be the most important thing to you. And when you understand that, man. Your life just begins to bubble up and overflow regardless of the external circumstances. Here's the reality. What you're giving yourself to first, that's what's number one in your life. If you give yourself first to your job, then your job's number one. If you're giving yourself number one to your education, then your education's number one. If if you're giving yourself first to your family, then your family's number one. If you're giving yourself first to the Lord, then he is number one. So I would just ask you today, is Jesus the one thing that drives everything else in your life? According to Scripture, that's what it means to be a Christian. So in churches, in giving, we talk about 10%. Why? Let me see if I can explain it and tie together what I've just said. 10% is a way of describing the biblical tithe. The tithe was first introduced early in Genesis. The first priest, the first high priest gave back to God 10% of those first fruits that they gained. And then all throughout the Old Testament, those who followed God practiced the tithe. And actually, they would end up giving, by the end of the year, about 30% of what they had made because they would start with 10%, and then they would have special offerings at the different feasts. But all throughout the Old Testament, they would give 10% of what they had earned back to God. And so the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to in the sermon, they came to him one day and they said, okay, Jesus, you said everything's different now. You said your way is the better way. You've raised the standard. You've said, we've heard it said this, but what about this? Well, what about the tithe? And Jesus said, you're asking me about the tithe? Yeah, tithe. But don't stop there. That's Matthew 23, verse 23, if you're looking for a reference there. But Jesus was saying, hey, the tithe is just the starting place. What I want is your first and your best. The Bible says that the righteous live by faith. You know what I've learned? The only way to live and to give by faith is to give my first and my best, not my leftovers. Can I just take you on a little imaginary journey? 
to the den of the Purvis Pack on Thursday at about 1 p.m. My wife had prepared this succulent meal. We were gifted a smoked turkey, and boy, was it good. But my wife, man, she made homemade macaroni and cheese, cornbread dressing with gravy, homemade cranberry, cranberry salad, green bean casserole. We had warm buttered and buttered and buttered rolls. And then in the name of Jesus, we had sweet potato souffle with candied pecans on top. Oh, my goodness. And then I can't tell you about dessert or it would be sinful. <laughs> oh, and by the way, just in case we didn't have enough meat, we threw in a prime rib. And you know what we did? We got out our china that we'd gotten when we were married 30 years ago. I think a lot of young couples don't even do that anymore. We got out our nice silverware. I, I showed the boys how you set the table according to Martha Stewart. It was a feast laid out, and it was so good. But we didn't eat it all. So you know what we did? For two whole days, that stuff was laid out on our counter. Now, we put it in the refrigerator at night. <laughs> Don't write me an email about the danger of that. But we spread it out, and we ate the leftovers let me tell you they were all right but it wasn't like it was the first time around can we just be honest here for a second some of you are giving God your leftovers I'm not saying you're a bad person I'm not saying you aren't doing other things to check the box that look good but you're not living and giving out of the overflow of grace because of what Jesus has done for you. I tell you, someone or something's getting your best. I want to give Jesus my best. Let me give you a second truth. The first one, a generous life is the overflow of grace changed heart. Second, a generous life is an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel of Christ. Now, what's the gospel of Christ? Man, you and I, we were born messed up. I don't care how good your family was. I don't care what acute kids you were. We were born messed up because of this thing that we're born with. It's like a spiritual birthmark. It's called sin. And sin is not just what we do. It's who we are. We're born sinners. And the Bible tells us that sin separates us from God. And if it's left undealt with, it'll have to be punished by death and forever separation from God. And it even tells us where? A place called hell. But in one of the most well-known verses of any writing... John 3, 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He, what? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God loves us so much, and He demonstrates His love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ gave, He 
gave his life. He died for us. When we give, we're just demonstrating that act that God demonstrated when he gave us forgiveness and when he gives us life. When we give out of the overflow, it's a declaration of God's goodness and a demonstration of his faithfulness in our lives. And church, I would just say in my life, all my life, he has been faithful. All my life, he's been so good to me. When I was growing up, I remember... I don't remember what grade, but I remember gathering around that, that round wooden kitchen table. It's now in my house, but it was the, the, the table I grew up with all of my life. And I remember being around that table as my parents were helping me with a science project. Some of you did this science project. We had to make a volcano. Raise your hand if you ever made a volcano. And we got plaster of Paris or cardboard. I don't know what all we did. I remember tenfold being there, and I don't remember how we did it, but we did something, and, and all of a sudden, that volcano that we created could erupt and explode. I'm not going to make a volcano today, but I am going to do an experiment. I got here another one of my favorite things, Diet Coke. But this Diet Coke... I just want you to think about that kind of representing your heart, my heart. Our heart on, our, on its own, the Bible calls it wicked. It's sinful apart from God. But what we've just discovered is that when the gospel comes in to a sinful heart, our heart is supposed to overflow with generosity and joy and all the things that distinguish us as followers of Jesus. So if the Diet Coke represents your heart, let's let this Mentos represent the gospel. Let's just see what happens. Y'all all right? The gospel coming into your heart. There it goes. Wow. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> When the grace of God takes root in our heart, the natural response is an overflow of joy, of love, of peace, of faith, of generosity. And that generosity meets the needs of others. And it builds God's kingdom. Now God expects that of you. That's why in the message Jesus said, when you do this, he didn't say if you give. He said when you give, this is how you should give. Your motive matters. But when you live the Jesus way, the change you've experienced on the inside overflows and impacts everything about you on the outside. So how should that look? What should you give out of the overflow? Here's what's cool. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to give you some hints, though. The Bible does talk about the tithe. That's a good starting place. That's a biblical admonition. I, I, I would think I want to obey those things that Scripture says. 
Now, I love what C.S. Lewis, some of you know the name C.S. Lewis, and maybe you read his book, Mere Christianity. This is what he said in Mere Christianity. I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. <laughs> I love that. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts and luxuries and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, then we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because of our charitable expenditures exclude them. So as we wrap this up, I just want you to think about how you're looking at giving. And there's four ways that I've discovered. Two of them are pretty negative. We'll start there. One is greed. I mean, you don't want to be greedy. <laughs> Nobody prays, Lord, help me to be more greedy. Why? Because the Lord can't bless a clenched fist, right? He, he blesses open hands. So let's move greedy out of the way. Uh, another is what I would call quid pro quo. Or um, you see it in TV and in some books kind of as the prosperity gospel. It says, if, if you do this, then... God will do that. God, if I, I give to you here, then you'll bless me over here. Problem with that? It's not biblical. You just won't find it in the Bible. We've already established some of the poorest people in the world are also some of the godliest people in the world, in other parts of the world. You know, our, our material blessing is not a direct result of our godliness. So what are some positive ways? Well, I've met a lot of people that, that take this step, and it's positive, but it's not the best. But let's call it ROI. You know, you know what ROI stands for? Return on, investment. Return on investment. And so they look at a church like ours and say, man, we're doing missions around the world, and we're feeding the homeless every week on the streets here in Tampa, and we're teaching English to internationals, and we're doing all these things. We see children being adopted. We see lives being changed. Man, when I invest here, that's a good return on my investment. And praise the Lord, that's true at Mission Hill. But that's not your best reason to give. Your best reason to give is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed your life. And now you're living in the overflow. Man, I want to live in the overflow. I want to live in such a way, man, that, that it's like the people that you read about in scriptures, that when they're walking down the street, the people see them and say, wow, they have obviously been with Jesus. So how do you give and live in the overflow? When you live in the overflow, you prioritize generosity. You say, that's going to be a part of what I do. When you live in the overflow, you plan generosity. It's not going to just happen by accident, guys. <laughs> you got to be intentional. You got to start somewhere, I would suggest today. And when you live in the overflow, you progress in generosity. Man, God doesn't just keep blessing you so that you can have a bigger house or a nicer car or better clothes. Jesus talked about that in another story. He called it the bigger barn syndrome. He doesn't bless you just so you'll have a bigger barn. Maybe he's blessing you so that you can be a bigger blessing. So what's your motive? 
Let me take you back to these verses we read a moment ago. 2 Corinthians 8, 8. I'm not commanding you. <laughs> so you just need to hear that. I don't, I don't think I've always been good at this as a pastor. I think as I get into God's Word and I grow and mature, you just need to I, I can't command you to give. Good grief, who am I? I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So through his poverty, you could become rich. I, I just want you to know Jesus in such a way, man, that it just overflows. Robert McMurray McShane said, the more you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, the more generous you become. He said, I fear there are many hearing me who now know they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. There's a story that talks about this in Scripture. <laughs> you know it. There's a song about it. Oh, Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man. <laughs> a wee little man was he. One day Jesus came to the town of Zacchaeus, his tax collector. And because Zacchaeus was short, he climbed up in a tree. The Bible tells us to see Jesus. But Jesus did with Zacchaeus the same thing he does with you and me. He, he confronts him right where he is. Zacchaeus, come down here. Zacchaeus met Jesus that day and it changed his life. And according to scripture, out of the overflow of the difference that Jesus made in his life, Zacchaeus became a generous giver. Did you know the Bible says that? It says that he gave back 50%. Not 10%, 50% of everything he had. And then the story ends this way. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. Zacchaeus wasn't saved because he gave. But because he was truly saved, he gave. I want to be more like Zacchaeus. God, make me smaller so that you're bigger and bigger in my life. So that out of the overflow of you flows generosity regardless of the circumstances. Do you bow your head with me? So I've said this already today, but most of us here are followers of Jesus. At least we profess that with our lips. If that's you, I would just say the truth is, well, my experience has been. Most professing Christ followers have a lot of growing to do in this area of our lives. If the shoe fits this morning, let the Holy Spirit put it on you and take the medicine. 
If you're already being generous, ask God to grow you in generosity. Ask Him to take you to another level. See if you can outgive God. Never happened. But somebody's here today and you've never begun a relationship with Christ. And this whole thing was kind of tense because without Jesus, when you start talking about money, you're talking about my God. But maybe somewhere along the way, you heard the truth of the gospel that I wove in there several times. That we're all born sinners in need of Jesus. And apart from his forgiveness and grace, we've got a hopeless life ahead of us. But thanks to Jesus, we can have forgiveness and we can have life. If that's you and you want to begin that relationship with Christ, maybe you would just pray a simple prayer like this. There's no magic words. But this could express your desire today. Just say, dear Jesus, just you and him right there, dear Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I believe you died for me. You took my punishment. I know you're alive today. Save me, Lord. I'm ready to follow you. I'll never want to be the same. Tell him thank you. Lord, as we close this time in your word and spend a moment just letting it sink into our life while singing this song, we, we declare we want to be like those Macedonian Christians. We want to first give ourselves to you. And that means, Jesus, that we want you to be first in our lives. So I pray that for me, this pastor. I pray that in my family. That I pray that over our church. Would you raise up godly men and women, godly students, godly teenagers who are living their life in such an evident way that the people around us would see the overflowing Jesus everywhere we go, every day. Here we are, Lord. We give you our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him together.